0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and in the cave with me tonight we have Cerise Howard. Hello. Hello. And the wonderful Emma Westwood. Hello. Um, before we kick things off tonight, we lost... Larry Cohen today which is a great loss He's
1: very careless of all of us
0: (laughs) (laughs) does not reflect well upon us At all Emma did you want to say a little bit about Larry I am actually
2: very sad about this And I only found out today So I'm still in mourning But uh, Larry Cohen is probably A name that certain people Will know, other people won't know But they will know from his films Uh, He's been Incredibly prolific As a a writer more than a director, he has directed a lot of films, but he has also written a lot of films. So he kind of started in that um, black exploitation mode. Um, Bone, I think, was his his uh, debut feature in 1972. And Black Caesar, he followed it up with Black Caesar, yeah, seminal.
0: Um, Black Caesar's awesome. It's yeah, so
2: seminal exploitation mm. film. But uh, also I think that most people who enjoy the horror ilk will love It's Alive or have some sort of relationship with It's Alive, um, which was a Larry Cohen film both written by and directed by uh, Larry Cohen. And then there was a film, look, I could just go on for ages. I just need to do the title God told. Told me to because it's one of the best titles ever unfortunately that film was released here in australia as the the demon <laughs> which was a really silly title for it because it was a it was a crime investigative thriller that had this wonderful supernatural edge to it and was um where the god told me to comes into it into play but also incredible films like Cue the Winged Serpent, The Stuff. The Stuff is brilliant. Which is so great. He, he wrote Phone Booth... I mean, and he was such a character. I was really lucky to be able to interview Larry Cohen and um, he he had a mighty ego. He loved to compare. <laughs> he compared all his films to other bigger films and how they like, ripped him off. Like what was? <laughs> he said that uh, Godzilla, the American Godzilla, had ripped off Q the Ring Serpent <laughs> <laughs> and, he and he said how It's Alive, E.T.
0: ripped off It's Alive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can see that.
2: He's amazing Look, amazing, amazing character Amazing filmmaker
0: So uh, we'll be greatly missed Yeah, I think it is a big loss that we have lost Larry It is sad (laughs) Um on tonight's show, we will be looking at the Hal as aspie, sorry, can't speak, Doc documentary aptly titled Hal. Um, and we're also going to be seeing if everything is still awesome with Emmett and his crew in the Lego movie two, the second part. But first we're going to look at Karen Kusama and Nicole Kidnam's. Kid mans God. God. <laughs> Kidman's. I'm not getting together tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Who joined forces in Destroyer? So, as a young cop, Erin Bell, played by Al Nicole, went undercover to infiltrate a gang in the California desert. So she has continued to work as a detective for the Los Angeles Police Department, but feelings of anger and remorse leave her worn down and consumed by guilt. So when the leader of that gang suddenly re-emerges, Erin embarks on an obsessive quest to find his former associates, bring him to justice and make peace with her tortured past. Um, this, I was really highly anticipating this film. Emma, what did you think of it?
2: Mmm... It's, yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to start it with this. I don't want to start it on a negative, but unfortunately, I've got a negative to start it with. And I think this is my my something for me to bear with this film, which is I had I couldn't get past our Nick with this film. I, I could, all I could do was see her in makeup.
0: Was well, I found the makeup very difficult in this movie?
2: Yeah, and and, and it really. It really dictated my viewing experience of it. Unfortunately, I, I, I think that is, yeah, you know, I couldn't shed it. All I could see with, was with her. She constantly looked like in her, um, in her present day form because she does have to play a character who's younger, and then and then older, sort of 50-50% of the time. Mm-hmm. In her present-day form, she looked like that moment in zombie films when you kind of see someone's been bitten and it's like, they'll be fine,
0: and then you turn around and you look at them and go, oh, no. There was, there was one one scene in particular, I think it was one of the ones where she was in the car, and her lips just looked like someone had thrown a whole heap of white lipstick on her mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I and and
2: that took away from this film, terribly, terribly so. I, I, I and I kind of, and that's not what it's about. I feel that uh, I loved uh, otherwise what this film was doing. If it was, I liked that it was um, it was very female centric, and I didn't think it was just slotting her into a male role. Uh, it was actually playing a, a genuine female role and once once you when you go from seeing characters like uh there was this uh, this kind of trend of when you had females playing tough guys or tough girls uh that they were all the cool girls sort of more like you know um Gina Davis in The Long Kiss Goodnight or Mm -hmm. La Femme Nikita and all that sort of thing now it's come around to we're not just being the cool girls we can be we can be the uncool girls as well, uh, and I do like that. That that was the 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 take on it, and the noir take on it, and the the gritty brutality. Um, but yeah, I, I found that the makeup was a stumbling block, and it's not. It's not that I don't feel that an attractive actress can be. I, I know that there was been some contra- controversy around the fact that I think there was an interview with Nicole Kidman where she had the interviewer was told that she, by the publicist that she they shouldn't bring up um, that she's been uglied up for this role, and that was the first question
0: that they actually asked, and she stormed she, w- she stormed out. Yeah, I didn't feel that she was ugly <laughs> in it by any means. No, she looking older. No, yeah.
2: no. They just tried to the idea Idea was to have her more of a grizzled, world weary character, mm-hmm. but I feel um, someone like she just didn't sell it for me. Kate Blanchett never sells it for me when she plays that sort of role as well. Like she was in, in Little Fish, um, the Rowan Woods film, the mm-hmm. Australian film that I didn't buy her as a, a, as a junkie in that either but then someone like i thought is this is this my problem am i having am i bringing in some sort of bigotry with this but then someone like charlice theron always sells it for me mm. like in something like monster then when she's just playing a weary mom in tully she constantly sells it for me so there was just something here that that dictated it for me
1: yeah mm. the the do you think this was taken on as a stunt casting gig? It's, it's when someone, when so much is made of a, a, an actor transforming themselves, um, it, it can so often overpower what whatever else is actually in a film, whether you wish it to or not. Partly, it's the hype that is generated. Uh, especially by the time we get to see a film here A film's usually had a bit of exposure elsewhere And the media's latched onto What here is that the, the main angle they're going to take with this film Which is that Nicole Kidman doesn't look all that much like Nicole Kidman <laughs> And that she looks especially weather-beaten And never more so than at the very start of the film, in fact And uh, the film does ask us to, to uh, give it a bit of time To tease out uh, a bit of narrative trickery A bit of trickery with timelines um, it's it's one of those films that withholds a lot of information throughout and just lets uh, gives you a little drip feed to to tie up all these uh, loose ends that run um, not exactly in parallel. They're they're what 15, seventeen years apart or so, yeah, guess, something mm-hmm. like yep, that. 17. Yeah, yeah. And Nicole definitely looks a lot healthier, a human, and when younger. Uh, yeah, she does look like that sort of zombie on the turn when we first meet <laughs> her in this, and she's even got that sort of gate and she uh she uh, dishevels her way towards a body on alongside the <laughs> canal there uh i mean she she carries it in her body well, I believe the body language of this character, but it mm. is extremely hard to not be conscious of um The fact that Nicole Kidman is there somewhere, that the face is obscured but you know, you can't help but know that it is her and it it is distancing. It does rob the film of some of the effect that I think a lot of the otherwise quite potent atmospherics would would do do serve it well. The sound design in this film is really fabulous. Mm. It's really eerie without being cliché and resorting to just uh, pulses, uh, heartbeat-type rhythms to... to, um, enrich the tension it, it just has a, a nice edgy sort of dystopian feel to it and it's certainly not a, a picture postcard la that we see in this film so it matches that quite well
0: but still really la yeah i really like that from the first yes, shot as soon as she gets so. out the car and I'm like that's la yep. yeah
1: well I've, I've never been but of course we see la or at least versions of it on film quite often. Mm-hmm. And um, I hadn't quite seen this particular take on it. I saw some murals I hadn't seen before. And yep. yeah, this there was there was a, a, a grit to it and a time of day even as well. I think it was shot and that was not super common to films I've seen set in LA. Mm-hmm. It had a, had some actually quite nice lighting, which uh, never flattered Nick. <laughs> oh, Nick! Yeah, any. and uh, mm.
2: also female DOP. So we've, yes. we've got a really, Karen Kosama directing this uh I think that uh, there's a wave of uh, women DOPs coming up, which is really exciting because that has... It, it seems to be the last bastion,
0: <laughs> if you know what I mean. Mm. It's a very hard field to uh, break into. I was really... Yeah, like I said, I was really looking forward to this because Karen Kasama's film previous to this one, The Invitation, I, I absolutely love loved too. it. Like I, yeah. I thought it was excellent. The sound design, and that was great too. Um, I don't... I did really enjoy this and I don't think that... Nicole's makeup took away too much for me. I, I'm a low-key Nicole fan. <laughs> I do really <laughs> like her, but yeah, it it was distracting to a point. Um, and it was interesting because we, so we we're getting flashback sequences, which you know I'm not going to give too much away. Where the first one that we see, she's quite beautiful, like you know conventionally beautiful in it. But even as those flashbacks progress, which I'm assuming is over this where she's infiltrating this gang over maybe a year or so, over some substantial yeah, substantial amount time. of time. Yeah. But even you know she her looks start becoming more dishevelled then too. So I thought it was interesting how they they did play with that in a sense, and I did like the way that the narrative and the time parallels were in there. But I also felt that her the sort of gang infiltration there wasn't I didn't feel that kind of emotional commitment to it that it should that I should Mm. have for her to be in this place which you know we see from the trailers and the posters where she's clearly had an experience that's been quite horrific and has impacted her life in a very negative way it didn't come across it wasn't that impactful for me
2: yeah yeah mm that's yeah felt I I, I I try to separate myself from that that initial, you know, that uh, my bugbear that just sat with me uh, and thought, well, what what is really defining this film? If this wasn't Nicole Kidman in this role, if this was someone else or if it was even a male protagon- product- protagonist, mm-hmm. I think if it was a male protagonist, first of all, there were story elements that probably wouldn't have come into play <laughs> but um, also it wouldn't have been anything, any mu- not really much chop. It would have been just mm-hmm. a little... A little low-budget film that played out on streaming services and and it would have sunk. So it was very much playing with the female protagonist was, which was the the main thing with this film. Also, though it had a nice narrative shift, yeah, it, it did, did have a nice yeah.
0: conclusion. Because the invitation didn't get a release. It it, he no, did. it it went straight to streaming, wasn't it? It
2: went straight to streaming here, and that was that had a, a stronger hook though and i love the way yeah i love that that film, that, that film just kept you gripped the mm. whole time completely different film though very uh, totally,
0: totally and
2: different. and this is what you've got to give to karen Kasama as well she's she doesn't sit into one slot she and does a lot of different things jennifer's body girl yep. fight
0: because i thought of it was so. interesting the male lead that we have in the invitation had lots of feminine qualities that he was sort of being made fun of for you know, his role in that film. And then, obviously, uh, Nicole has traditionally masculine qualities that we're looking at in this film. Has anyone seen that TV show, The Killing? Rem- Do you remember that from, oh, God, maybe about ten years ago? No, I haven't. No. There was... Oh, it's excellent anyway, but the... Nicole's character reminded me a hell of a lot of the main sort of character that was in this cop show. Um, there's not much point in discussing it as though, a female
2: as a female character. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yep. female detective. Because this is really pitting itself. This is really pitting itself as. Groundbreaking in that regard. It was very, very similar to that, I thought, the TV show The Killing, which I think was initially a Danish show and then they remade an American version. Yeah, I think you're right. It
1: was the connection there, part of it, that not just a female protagonist and really grizzled and hard boiled, but also one with a maternal instinct that seemed to have. Uh, been yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh, totally derelict uh-huh. in duty. Yep,
0: yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Mm. I
1: mean, that's a subplot throughout here that just permeates the mm. texture of the film in in ways that uh, aren't uninteresting, but also more could probably have been made of that. Yep. It, was, it was. It felt a little hackneyed. The little conversation she tried to have with mm. her daughter and mm. and uh, her daughter's. Uh, thuggish boyfriend. Um, yeah.
2: He
0: was bad, wasn't he? Oh, he's a badass, <laughs> all right. Look, it, it's very
2: disrespectful. He was. was. Yeah, he's very disrespectful.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Nick didn't exactly pay him anything other than short shrift either. She was... Uh,
2: <laughs> she, she she wasn't
1: the most reasonable character. What was it actually her name? Erin. Uh, Erin Bell. Yes, Erin yes. Bell. Erin yep. Bell.
2: It was... Uh, there had a... I really thought that uh the girl the girl fight sequence was very good it that was kind of yeah, it yeah, was great that was probably that was probably the central moment of the film mm-hmm. and i think the and it wasn't justified it was actually a quite a long sequence sort of a tagging yeah, and capture yeah. sequence and it was really brutal mm-hmm. but i think this to this film's credit as well it sets itself up as being very br- brutal from the start even the credits i think now we've really got accustomed to those credits that just flash up those really, you know, aggressive um, font on the screen that and just takes over, yeah. the, you know, <laughs> the whole frame and then flashes out and you know that you're coming up for something that's pretty
0: heavy-handed. But it was. I did, I did think this was good, didn't it? Nicole's makeup didn't take away from it too,
1: too much. <laughs> yeah, from not me. too much, and there was some lovely fluid camera work, which yeah, always seemed was. to be the camera seemed to be just on her back, mm-hmm. right, really just over her shoulder, yeah. just lurking. I
0: think definitely worth having a look at. So, Destroy- Destroyer, God, I'm doing it again. Is screening now on wide release. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three rrr in Melbourne, Australia. So next up, we are looking at the Hal Ashby documentary, so Hal Ashby, Ashby, sorry, directed a remarkable, uh, remarkable string of acclaimed and widely admired classics throughout the '70s. Some of them being Harold and Maud, which the song we just heard was from, The Last Detail, Shampoo, Coming Home, and Being There. He is often overlooked amid a crowd of luminaries from his generation. So this documentary explores that curious oversight using rare archival material, interviews, and personal letters and audio recordings to reveal a passionate. Obsessive artist, um, cerise What did you think of the documentary? Hal?
1: it's a nice piece of work. It, mm. it uh, helped reignite a bit of a in, in interest in checking out more of his work. For me, some of it I've, I've known, and I first saw Harold and Maud about twenty five years ago. I was immediately very taken by it. Though I now having just seen this documentary and seen footage of it in widescreen, I reminded me that I must have only ever seen this on VHS back in the day and. Gets me thinking that actually, I haven't seen the film. I haven't seen the lovely compositions mm. in that film. I've seen some pan and scan aberration, abomination. Um, and so I wish to revisit that. And I, I'd really like to check out some of the the other films that, um, I mean, there are a whole bunch of 80s films that are given short shrift in this documentary. Uh, but I didn't even know he'd, his career yeah. had continued into the 80s. Yeah, I exactly. wasn't
0: aware of that either. It was, um, yeah, and they were given very sort of minimal mention yeah. here, too.
1: Yeah, almost as if that they're not worth bothering with which I you know might be a little harsh it might not it, it, it was clear that the narrative this this documentary was trying to get across was that Ashby's genius was um, a perfect match for the the time if the time was the 70s and when mm. when things moved into the era of Ronald Reagan as president that's that's when the Ashby's of this world were no longer able to be the mavericks who could get their films up in the Hollywood studio system. Uh, I, I think this documentary must have been a few years in the making because there, there's quite a bit of interview footage here that looks quite old. Haskell Wexler, the yeah, great cinematographer, he's, he's been dead for about yeah, four yeah. years. Yeah. Mm. He's one of the main talking heads in this, mm. uh, along with it must be his son um, who worked on a few of his films too. Mm. There's a lot of people here who speak with tremendous fondness um, admiration and, and love for, for Ashby, who was clearly a, a rather um, peace-loving sort of character. And, I mean, ev- everything about what how I'd envisioned him in the past matched how he was described here and, and the footage we see of him. Though the letters were perhaps a little riper than I'd imagine they would be. <laughs> the, the amazing letters being read out that he's written to his good pal, Norman Jewison, who really helped get him his big breaks in Hollywood, are just... Uh, Pretty over the top They were fun yeah. They were
0: almost Hunter S Thompson oh, Yeah weren't they?
1: Yeah I suspect He may have been Quite quite stoned When he wrote yeah. some of those <laughs> uh, It's an awful lot Of peace and love And understanding <laughs> in, uh, in in them um, uh, Look it's a very nice Dock There's nothing terribly uh, Formally adventurous About mm. it It's Kind of what you would hope a doco like this to be, mostly to shine a light on the films and on some of the people who were involved with them, who have stories to tell about how they came to be involved. And it's nice seeing um, some recent footage of Jane Fonda, and John Voigt. Yeah, it yep. doesn't see much of John Voigt anymore, and I think it's possibly because much of Hollywood's probably just pushed him off to one side because he's part of that oddball group of conservatives, yeah. which <laughs> seems quite at, at odds with his uh, '70s film mm-hmm. work. Mm. Whether it's in um, Coming Home or, or Midnight Cowboy, especially films with a real connection with the counterculture, which he in due course seemed to abandon. And, uh, but he did bring the world to Angel- uh, Angelina, Jolie. And we even see her in her, her. first yeah. role. <laughs> this, yeah, yeah. yeah, a little cameo within this documentary. I had no idea she was in a film at the age of, I don't know, she must have been five or six. and yeah, tiny. That. Yeah. So look, yeah, an entirely enjoyable look into the. Um, the film career of someone i don't think has exactly been overlooked just just because his career was shorter than others he, he's not mentioned in the same breath as scorsese or yeah. the likes of him who found a way to just keep a career going by doing one for the studio one for him one for the studio one for him yeah. and you know, just keeping things ticking over and and ashby died quite young he was only 59 Yeah, he died, yeah, yeah,
2: really young. Pancreatic Pancreatic cancer Mm. he had, so he went pretty fast as well. Yeah, I I found with Hal Ashby... Of the '70s directors, I remember reading *Easy Rider*, *Raging Bulls*, the Peter Biskin book, and I was always and was quite young when I read it. And you know, working through the the filmmakers, and I was always more taken at that time with the the Scorsese's and the Coppolas because their films were sort of more in your face and highly visceral, I guess, as a as an adolescent. So I feel that I came to Hal Ashby never. I wasn't really attracted to his vibe of cinema at that time and I've come to appreciate him so much more as I've got older. In fact, when I was a teenager, the thought of watching Harold and Maud was a little icky. Really? <laughs> See,
0: I think the first time I saw Harold and Maud, I would have been about 17. Oh, my God, I just loved it ew. so much. <laughs> well, it was,
2: I had this kind of, oh, no, what? Ew. And then, yeah, ew. But that is just a film... It, I think Harold and Maud encapsulates his absolute brilliance in the way that that film sells that relationship and just talks about humanity life cycles everything it's just in, it's incredible so he's a much more nuanced subtle filmmaker um His films always, even though they have a political edge, because he is part of that um, counterculture hippie movement. There's this, there's this tendency to try and think, (laughs) or wanting to think of him as some sort of kind of hey, chill out, dope smoking dude. But he was. I got the sense of really intense anger from this documentary. Yeah, yeah, and they had. I noticed Ben, the actor Ben Foster, played his typewriter voice as such with those letters as he's hammering things out on the the type typewriter and that was what Cerisa has already referred to it was kind of like these um stream of consciousness um letters to norman jewison uh i also really liked the way that it played into talked a lot about his work as an editor and how he came from being an editor. He edited In the Heat of the Night for Norman Jewison and Amy Scott who directed this film is also an editor. She edited and directed it so it's kind of got a a nice little meta thing going there, no doubt where her appreciation comes from being a uh, a, a, an editor and a director Um, So I felt that there was, I felt really moved by this actually. Mm. I felt really kind of strangely when Norman Jewish and teared up. I've kind of got a little bit teary as well. And how he talked about that he was he loved um, Hal Ashby more than he loved any other man. And it was there was a there there was a lot of love with this anger in this film.
0: Yeah, I am. Um been really familiar with his films particularly Harold and Ward and Shampoo but didn't know too much about him as a person so this was really enjoyable. I loved it. I loved seeing how wild he was and how out there he was. I also didn't realise that he was an editor or an Oscar winning editor at that. I didn't Mm. realise that he had edited in the heat of the night. I really liked that story about him being somewhere and then going oh shit I'm meant to be at the Academy Awards now and then (laughs) Well, there's a story that goes untold there because we
1: see um, it was for shampoo, wasn't it? Julie Christie goes up and accepts an Oscar. Mm -hmm. I think Robert Town as well. Yeah. Well, Hal's not there.
0: Yeah, and they (laughs) they sort of they didn't mention it why he's not there. mm.
1: Yeah. Do we know? No. No, I don't know. It's just an odd oversight. But yeah,
0: I thought the exact same thing that it, there's you know we're seeing everybody else getting these Oscars and then he great, he's straight okay. It's great
1: seeing Robert Towne interviewed because you sense a real kindred spirit there. Even mm. the visuals of Robert Towne, yeah. he still looks like the old hippie. Mm. See, Very he, much he so. He and Hal yeah. Ashby were on the same page and and willing to improv a, a lot as well. That was something that came out. Um, and with Has- Haskell Wexler too, that they loved actually just shooting a lot of footage. Uh, they were uh, clearly very keen just to yes age scripts to work with they had um but a lot of these
2: films didn't have that much
0: shape necessarily and, mm, at that big the scene at the end of um Coming Home yes. with John Voight that was completely that improvised. he was just told it's to amazing. go up
2: and talk to them it was incredible mm. you know stand up in front of these students and just talk as your character which is basically the character that um Stones Oliver Stones born on the 4th yep. of July is based on isn't it yep. Yep. it is, yep. it is. The same I found it really interesting to see that his film Bound for Glory the story of Woody Guthrie mm-hmm. ha- apparently had the first steady cam oh, yeah. shots in it I thought that was The Shining why was I always told that was The Shining?
1: Because Kubrick is a genius.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought it, I was really surprised to see that because um, that's The Shining is
0: always touted as that you know our first film
2: that yeah. really puts Steadicam to
0: use and also yeah just amazing mm. to see how incredibly dedicated he was to his work that they had a lot of I guess his ex partners his daughter on this five doc- wives five sw- five wives five um, wives at all of them saying that he would sleep about 2 hours a night and that was it. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's uh, uh, yeah, he was he's a genius, really. And it was uh, I lo- look I love seeing work on these eccentric uh, these documentaries on these eccentric people i mean he was definitely a personality i found it interesting that his partners his ex-partners talked so lovingly about they him as well they all did yeah <laughs> every single yeah, one of yeah them did. which is wonderful maybe that comes from the hippie era yeah. of free love and everything but um, y- y- yeah there was there was a lot to, to get from this. Seeing he as an editor, I mean, I think you have this idea that an editor would love cutting, but he's not someone who has films that are heavily edited. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I'd imagine an editor, if an editor is a filmmaker now, they'd be more cutty, cutty, cutty. Um, he very much uh, embodied the aesthetic of the time. Like King of Thieves? Like King oh, of Thieves. Yeah. If anyone heard our show on that, cut, 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 yeah. cut, cut. Too many cuts. <laughs> but yes, I, I thought I really enjoyed this documentary, but I enjoy seeing this life of someone that I, a, a
0: genius, a crazy genius, um, unfold. Yeah, I really, mm. I thought it was great. And like I said, I, I didn't know too much about him as a person, and it was really delightful seeing about how, you know, just how out there he was. And it definitely reignited my interest in going back and revisiting these films, which you can do at the moment because... (gasps) Really, Sally? You can. You can. Cinema Nova having a retrospective of his work. So um, they are screening Harold and Maud, Shampoo and Being There... Also, HAL is opening at Cinema Nova this Thursday, so it hasn't started yet. Um, So you can catch the documentary there, which I highly recommend. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. So now... We are moving on to the Lego Movie 2, the second part. So the citizens of Bricksburg face a dangerous new threat when the uh, Lego Duplo invaders from outer space start to wreck everything in their path. Uh, The battle to defeat the enemy and restore harmony in the Lego universe takes Emmett... Lucy, Batman, and the rest of their friends to a far away, unexplored world to test their courage and creativity. Um, Cerise, you were, you've been a big fan of Spideyverse Verse and the other the first Lego movie. What do you think of this one?
1: Ah, oh, it's not a patch on Spider Man into the Spider Verse or whatever haven't that was. I've not seen it yet. Oh, um, no, that's, yeah, that's silly. Really extraordinary. Mm. Um, whereas this this film, uh, uh, well, I think they're, they're, it, there's plenty to admire in it, and certainly there's a endless stream of eye candy in the form of lego shapes morphing this way and that but it's uh it's exhaustingly referential to the to the point for me of of uh distraction i i I know it's trying to play to multiple audiences at once and and maybe maybe some of the younger audiences this is pitched at are as steeped in let's say uh all of the batmans that have ever been made as i am though i possibly more so but would an Adam West reference just, I
0: mean, would they, would they know? Yeah, I found when I saw this, it was um, like a 9.30 screening at Westgarth and it was full of kids. Yeah. And I thought the exact same thing. I was thought, I'm getting all these references, but the majority of the audience here doesn't have a clue. But also a lot of the references aren't necessarily
1: particularly witty they're just references Mm. i mean there are so many that it's just it it sort of buries the film a bit and it's not like the film isn't still full of ideas it's just that it could have just allowed itself to breathe a little i think Mm. but there's still plenty to admire uh the the lego world that we see at the outset is quite a dystopian one and there's a whole hell of a lot of mad (laughs) max fury road
0: Road stuff happening in it yeah
1: it's pretty unmistakable um (laughs) Yeah, but that's that's kind of that – that is a little bit of a harbinger of, of what's to come with the rest of the film and that it is so referential. There's there's not much that happens in it which isn't – which is just an, a purely original. An awful lot of it is uh, pointing to precursors in um, superhero land in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there really that many Lego superheroes? I mean, I'm not
0: – I don't know. I
1: mean, Lego Batman I knew existed, but we've got all the, these other Marvel Lego figures in yeah. there. Most of them mocking themselves, and even Chris Pratt as as Emmett, the the um, every every man, every yeah. every Lego man, every yeah, the awesome, the one who just thinks everything's awesome. Uh, I mean, he even he without going to spoiler territory, his. Uh, a character very similar to a version of himself is endlessly referential to who Chris Pratt was before he suddenly became an action star, that he was some sort of pudgy, puppy-fatty sort of character from, I guess it was Parks and Recreation he first came mm-hmm. to. I've never His liked that
2: show. His best role. No. I never I liked. Really like that I've never show. have seen
1: it. It's very annoying.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's one of it's the- very good.
1: It's one of those <laughs> mockumentary comedies where everyone's constantly pu- doing little... Sidelong glances oh. at a camera as if there'd be a camera there always. Because no, just,
2: it's no. not. Oh, look, like I'm getting that. conflicted. Any info move. from you too? I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Doing doing a little, it off, it or
1: not. A little <laughs> off topic. Um, what did I wish to actually say about this? Uh, I don't know. Oh, I do know. I do know. I think there's some very problematic stuff in this with regards yeah, tell to tell us about it. Well, so there's there's a a battle of the sexes at play in this film. A boy and a girl vying for. Uh, uh, they're clearly very, uh, well, they're clearly from a wealthy American middle class family. They have a lot of Lego. They uh, really have a lot between them. I thought them. I had
0: a lot of Lego when no, I was they, a kid, but I haven't got a patch on these ones yet. No.
1: no, and will they ever learn to share or will they be forever at loggerheads? Because this film, much like Lego the, heads. Lego <laughs> heads. Much like the first one, there's, there, there are various levels of reality here and there's the, the actual live action family that is the sort of creators of this universe, uh, the gods, um, sort of Judeo-Christian gods, I expect, uh, very, very much so. Very white bread, except there is a hint of a mixed race marriage there, though it's not really teased out for
0: anything terribly yeah, profound. Was yeah. there, it has been a little while since I saw the first Lego movie. Was there as much live action in the first one as there was in this one? Not
1: at first, because it didn't want to... Show too much of that mm. to get to give it that context, so as to explain why everything was awesome and everything was the same day in day out, and mm. this was an awesome thing, but actually it wasn't because it was all related to a battle between father and son over whether you build what's in the box or you use your imagination, and mm-hmm. so it was a, a nice pee into the powers of imagination to transcend mundanity, whereas this one now introduces the threat of the little sister who mightn't play. By the same rules, with her very as, uh, gendered, yeah, they're, yeah. They're
0: very yeah, gendered Lego. This is
1: where, yeah, I think things are super problematic because that is on some very dull, binarized lines. Yep. There, um, yeah. So, Sally,
0: Um I bloody loved this. Thought it was great.
1: Is <laughs> <laughs> that just because there's was a Motley Crue song in it?
0: I like that too. I was like, shit, yeah, this is what I'm. I'm going to be hooking up this week. <laughs> uh. But, um, yeah, I, my one sort of downfall was that the live action didn't really... I thought there was too much of it. There didn't need to be that much. Um, The audience, even though the, the primary audience that I saw with this was small children, they still didn't need that much explaining with it going back to live action. But uh, I did think it was so much fun. I liked all the references on top of the references. It just... It made me giggle. Um, I haven't seen Lego Batman, though, and I also haven't seen Spideyverse, which I know I, I must see. But it's the, the same writers, but they did not direct this one. Is that right, Cerise?
1: Uh, I'm not sure, but they're, they're quite different sensibilities. Uh, you know, the Spider-Man one is, is just a lot more and um, – I'm trying to look for a word other than woke. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot more layered okay. and a lot more intelligent with how it plays with mm. a whole bunch of alternate realities – um, and and mixes mixes various cultural um, uh, li- lives and and experiences to much more profound and satisfying effect. Yep. Whereas this is everything's a throwaway gag in this. Mm.
0: And and you're totally right that there is all this stuff, particularly with the the brother and the sister. And what was it called? The sister verse or something where they were, the Lego was being taken and held hostage. Yeah, something like that. And it it was all incredibly very, very gendered and very binary in this is what boys' Lego looks like and this is what girls' Lego looks like. That was another, I think, big downfall for this movie. Um... Also, the music, there was a song in it called This Song's Gonna Get Stuck in Your Head. Yeah, and it, it wasn't, it get, wasn't it actually that catchy. No, no, it didn't get stuck in my head at all. And there was another song called This Is a Catchy Song, which I don't remember either. Yep. So um, Everything Is Awesome, of course, comes up again and there's a nice sort of sadder rendition of Everything Is Awesome in Lego Movie 2 which really is just a banger and does get stuck in your head. But, yeah, the rest of the soundtrack for this I don't think was anywhere near as catchy as the first one. So there were some failings there, but overall I thought this was great.
1: It's very focused on the institution of marriage. That's another oh, yeah, wildly was, conservative
0: yeah. element. Yep. So, yeah, one, the sort of big driving force is that they have to go, some of the Lego was stolen and they have to have a matrimonial ceremony. That's what the film's about and it trying to be stopped by Emmett, the every guy, because this is going to ruin his Lego universe. So, yeah, look, to be honest, I hadn't even thought about that, but it is super conservative in that way.
1: Yeah. Mm. Lego Lego Batman is... Kind of the, the almost the the focal point of a lot of this film's narrative. Yeah, is, is he that interesting, Lego he Batman? He had his
0: own film, didn't he? Well, I believe so. Yeah. I didn't see Lego yeah.
1: Batman the movie. I thought that just seemed a little redundant. It was quite a funny gag in the first one. Because then I realised actually, okay, so there are Lego Batman
0: mm-hmm.
1: pieces sets out there. But um, yeah, there, I think there is such a thing as overkill. Yeah, yeah, and I think this this film gives gives just too much of a good thing. I really enjoyed the first one. A lot. I, I still enjoyed elements of this and got a few wry giggles at some things. And some of the songs had some wit to them, but they too were just laden with references. Mm. And references aren't always just innately, inherently
0: funny. Yeah. I, so, I, I, I did really enjoy the, uh, the sparkly vampires, the, the Twilight references there. Yeah.
1: They were good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's some funny stuff, but I think a bit, bit overdone, a bit overlong. This was
0: yeah. It was it was almost two hours, which is very long for you know a kids' film.
1: One curious thing: it was trying to sell mindfulness. Did you have that little? Did you see this? And there was a little introduction before the film from Emmett in character, trying to pitch some sort of mindfulness for children. No, that didn't happen. No, in the
0: yeah. in the screening that I was at.
1: Yeah, there was some sort of product placement within the film as well.
0: <laughs> the whole film's a big, <laughs> a big yeah, advertisement. with respect to the, yeah, this yeah. side, which is what seemingly was... a little less sinister. Please
2: talk about the mindfulness. Yeah, because this, this
0: wasn't before the screening that I no, saw. that's curious.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: just some little uh, helpful, little slowly paced, uh, was there just a hint of a mantra, even Emmett guiding you through just a little, some thoughts that might help you calm down, should you... That's need to bizarre yeah it was peculiar
0: yeah that <laughs> was really bizarre yeah hmm. mm. <laughs> well on that note uh lego movie 2 the second part is now screening on wide release on tonight's show we discussed destroyer hell and the lego movie 2 the second part uh In the cave next week, we are going to be looking at Jordan Peele's much-anticipated new film, Us, Claire Denis' sci-fi horror, High Life, and we're going to start trying something a little bit different which is bringing in a retrospective film to look at so the first one that we're going to look at next week is from 1961 uh it's the misfits so it's the final completed film for both Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe so we'll be talking about that one next week Um, you can subscribe to Plato's Cave uh, our podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts our Track listing from tonight, also the films that we talked about tonight should be up on the website very soon. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing Plato's Caves podcasts and Carl Chapman for panelling the show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.